Jai Guru, everyone. Jai Guru. Hello, welcome to the Yogananda podcast, Autobiography of a Yogi, line by line. Today we're doing chapter eight, part five, and this is the last part of this chapter. You may be pleased to know because it's very scientific, but also the chapters coming are something very much I'm sure people are looking forward to as well. So we'll, uh, we're with the usual crowd, but uh, thankfully it's a full full suite today. How are, How's uh, Mike doing today? Very well. I, I was actually not supposed to be here today, but somehow life um, happened and now I'm here. Oh, I thought you meant you, by birth you're not supposed to be here. Like none of us are supposed to be here. You know? You're supposed to be in the... the wow, yeah. Heavenly, okay. Heavenly I, planes. You also write without brain. Yeah. <laughs> and Lauren, how are you? Yep, very well, thank you. Good. And Chris is somewhere in Portugal again, aren't you, Chris? Muted. Sorry, sorry, friends. Yeah, chatting away to myself. I was landed into Porto, Portugal, just the other night. So, I wonder, do we have any listeners in Porto? Say hi. If we do, I'm going to be here for a couple months. Nice. Ah, very nice. Well, meet Chris at the mm. one of the coffee shops in Porto. I'm sure he'll be happy to meet you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, think I actually have a SRF group in in um, in Porto. I, I reached out to it by email, but so far, ah, even better. Meet Chris at the Self-Realized Fellowship Meditation. Best type of communion. Exactly. <laughs> so, worldwide acclaim is the first section of this chapter. Sorry, not chapter. This part that we're doing. So we're starting with years later, Bose's. Uh, findings were basically recognized worldwide and further substantiated. Um, and it should obviously come to no surprise to us in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, what groundbreaking work it was. Um, and then and then in this autobiography section, he goes on to quote uh, various scientists from Columbia, Univer Columbia universities and the experiments they did. But um, I was reading... Um, uh, Shakespeare play Macbeth recently and um, as you may or may not know there's there's rumors that uh, Guruji was Shakespeare and uh, his writing both in the Shakespeare's most famous plays ones that are confirmed to be written by Shakespeare and Guruji's writings in the books that we know you would certainly uh, suggest that that's got to have some truth to it but uh, in in the in the play Macbeth, um, I was I was watch I was reading um, reading a certain section about uh, Lady Macbeth and um, how she uh, she kind of suppresses her her um, guilt and through that she sees like uh, she has visions and then she gets nightmares and then uh, that kind of thing. So the, the the analysis for that says that Shakespeare was basically describing in the play, the impact of repressed emotions and guilt and how that manifests and leads to essentially to insanity. And this is hundreds of years before uh, the actual psych psychological research actually took place. So it, it's funny that in, in, in here, we're talking about both, you know, as a scientist, essentially the future and, you know, influencing various works, but equally Shakespeare in his writing of a seemingly um, 
you know, innocuous, entertaining play such as Macbeth, uh, suspense filled, but it also seems to have had influence in the scientific arena in the in the psychi psychiatry research. So I thought that was pretty cool, and and I was reading that as I was reading this, so I thought that was a good parallel for for me. Um, but the the Columbia University is essentially what they. Oh, Mike, please. I wonder if that's. Um... A role you want to be in that this kind of person that is ahead of its time you bring all those ideas you kind of know instinctively you're right and everyone tells you you're wrong and then you pass away and then 50 years later people are like, oh yeah this guy he was actually pretty smart yeah. <laughs> um I, there must be either I, I don't know if it is depressing or if it is actually <laughs> nice because people give you space and time you can work put the best um work out and know that one day maybe it will be picked up by someone it's yeah it's certainly a big cliche isn't it in um, analysis of prominent figures in history um that, that people use. i keep i keep thinking of mozart who was during his lifetime he died a poor man he was buried in a mass grave and now everybody's talking about him like he's the greatest musician ever right but it's really um, the fame that didn't come to him. I wonder if that's something that will manifest in the next incarnation. Um, as mm. gotta love Mozart. Yeah. Gotta love his uh, his first name was certainly ahead of its time, wasn't it? It's a name that you mean Amadeus. Or... Oh, second name. Then. <laughs> Wolfgang. Is Wolfgang his second name then? Yeah, it's Wolfgang Amadeus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. First name. Yeah, that's a cool. Cool name <laughs> that the youth of today would love to have. Um, <laughs> Yeah. But in English, what does it mean in German? Is it German? No, Wolfgang. I don't yeah. think it has a meaning. Not a gang of wolves, then. <laughs> as, the English, as the English would suggest. <laughs> um, uh, so going back to the autobiography. Um, so the Columbia University and the research that was published by the New York Times suggests that uh, essentially that the nervous systems you know that we know today that the research was being undertaken then and it influenced essentially influenced everything up to up to now you know the, the these are like you know electrical impulses and nerves we kind of that's knowledge that we we take for granted right now and um but obviously back then that's not knowledge that was taken for granted it was groundbreaking stuff wasn't it um the other thing I was going to say was that this is also one area where the, you know, uh, Bose's instruments and his hypotheses on various things really had such a big influence in the field of medicine, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, that just reminds me that how far we have come in technology. I have a, a friend here who is leading a lab um, and she's a neuroscientist. And she has put all of machines on people's heads, and and then you can clearly see um, when you when you move your body, the 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 line that the graph that is created by those machines like changes based on your movement, and so we can basically measure all those brain waves now. And back then, we were denying that any of it was going on, and that's mm. uh, barely a hundred years ago, right? Mm. Indeed, you got some cool. Uh educated friend in the, people in the know mike should uh, 
bring them bring them on to discuss some of this stuff. They'll be more qualified than us <laughs> to, to talk about this. Um, That's true for sure. Yeah. But we represent uh, ninety nine point nine percent of the readers, <laughs> which is why <laughs> who are equally unqualified to talk about this. But we read it, read it, and enjoy it all the same. Um, so he was saying that essentially until these instruments that both you know was using for all these all these things testing on on plants essentially there was no way to measure such you know fast moving electrical imp impulses and, and the amplification of the of those signals are essential to, under to the understanding of what that research and what that those findings were in, in neurology and neurosciences um, and then we have um, a very interesting parallel so then they dr doctors Cole and Curtis um, essentially found that freshwater plant nitella had, as, as is used in goldfish bowls around the world, actually, oh, not around the world, actually goldfishes, not everyone has around the world. India, we don't have goldfishes as pets. I always thought it was crazy. I remember, I actually distinctly remember when, um, when as a youth, my friend said, I've got a goldfish. <laughs> Yeah, and it was yeah, <laughs> Mike. I I didn't know that until recently, but I was recently at a Persian New Year celebration, and you know at at, at No Roots, right? They put like this table and they put all the sweets and flowers and decorated. And what I didn't know that until recently is that one part of it is also a bowl of goldfish. That's like the tradition. <laughs> and, and so at my sister's house, they had No Roots and the goldfish are still there. There's a, there's a bowl of goldfish there now that I find so funny that uh, they're still alive and they're uh, still doing well. So, oh, so, so not goldfish to snack on. This is to look at, is it? To look, yeah, live goldfish, yeah. Oh, good, good, good. That's the, gives me yeah. some, some yeah. relief. Um, but goldfish, um, <laughs> sorry, the Persians very much do know how to celebrate their cultural pastimes are there and then you're very patriotic about the new year celebrations mm. and yeah it's very nice mm. to have persian friends <laughs> to celebrate with them they're very hospitable aren't they um yeah, yeah so these uh they, essentially they found that the fibers inside this nitella plant are exactly the same essentially as the fibers and the electrical signals are that are in nerves the only difference being that the velocity is much slower than in uh, mammals, essentially. But um, the, the fact that they're slower meant that they can use those um, and measure those and then deduce some findings from that. And essentially, you wouldn't be able to do that in with mammals because it's the, they, they didn't have the technology at that time to, um, you know, to, to, to measure that. So that's pretty cool that they used that. Um, method of research to use to use one thing from the other um so i i will say right now you'd kind of half challenge well, i would half challenge this because research now like there's a there's a very popular um show on bbc right now um david david attenborough which i'm sure the majority of our listeners will have heard of but if you haven't he's um He's sure. this very famous uh, biologist, uh, scientist, and in in England, and he's become world famous not 
not just because of the research he was doing, but also because of his lovely seasoned voice, which is almost like he was, it was God designed it for this very purpose of describing uh, <laughs> nature and all its intricacies. But he was in, in the, in the show, there's a recent show called the British Isles and uh, the paradigm was, uh, you know, most people think there's not much to see in Britain. <laughs> it's a random island in the middle of middle of uh, you know northern Europe where not much happens wildlife-wise. But this show really, really challenges that. Um, and one of the things that they show about there's, there's a specific um, episode about trees. Um, Lauren, would you like to read out what what's in this specific episode? Mm -hmm. It says. Autumn brings fungi, and we travel underground to see how a subterranean network of fungi, known as the Wood Wide Web, connects the whole forest together, passing vital nutrients and information between trees, supporting new trees and healing damaged ones as required. So, if you can imagine, like, uh, there's, there's a thing called a neural network. It's, if you can imagine, like, a brain and the synapses of the brain, like, and, and you being able to visualize the elect electrical signals moving in the various parts of the nervous system, imagine that magnified a hundredfold. And the, the, actually using the fungus, the fungal networks, because underground there's all sorts of fungi that we can't see. Um, like I think apparently un under your lawn, there's it's, it's built on fungus, and if it wasn't there, then your lawn wouldn't grow. So essentially, in forests, there's a similar thing. And the the, the this episode was showing that um, it, not only are, is the fungus used to you know uh, revivify dead and you know make organic matter, but also um, as a means of communication and passing energy in between the whole of the forest and the network of trees. So if, for example, there's a, a downed tree or a broken branch, or for example, one of the trees wasn't getting much, uh, much um, water, what happens is it draws, draws in that um, energy and that nutrition from the healthy trees, and then they collectively give it to the the weaker tree so and this is all happening like really beautifully and uh, really like cohesively so it's a really really advanced uh, system of um you know organic matter that you'd think is independent but is actually very 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 connected and essential for the survival of the whole forest because each one depends on depends on each other so it's really nice and um i wonder how much um how much you know, both his research uh, influenced that uh, that that avenue of research? We would never know. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's quite cool. Um, so then then it also says that the Nutella, the Nutella plant then may be considered as a Rosetta stone uh, for unveiling all the secrets in between the realms of mind and matter, and Rosetta stone. Mike, what is a Rosetta stone? <clears throat> well, it's now used as a metaphor for something that can translate. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's a stone. I, so I, I'm speaking now from like what I learned in school. It has it has like the same text written on it in three different languages, right? And mm -hmm. that's how certain languages were deciphered. Yeah, and specifically um, 
<laughs> hieroglyphics <laughs> hieroglyphics yeah. is that how you say it um was uh it was, mm. the rosetta zone was was key to actually um uh working out how to read hieroglyphics so it's uh, my uh, to answer your question yeah. it's in uh, I didn't know, but you reminded me it's in the British Museum. <laughs> should be, it's a safe place, right? <laughs> should be uh, should be in a museum in Cairo, I imagine. But uh, nope, it is in uh, one day in Britain. One day. Maybe, yeah. maybe. <laughs> it's a gift. To, I'll, I'll tow the British line, the Rishi Sunak line. It's a gift for humanity. No one particular civilization. <laughs> Thank you, Britain. <laughs> and if if we hadn't preserved it so well, it wouldn't be, it would be in pieces, shattered. <laughs> anyway, the next section of the uh, book is he essentially quotes the Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore, and Rabindranath Tagore is India's very famous poet um, and musician, and he comes from a long line of uh, accomplished family members and we're going to read and hear all about him in a chapter dedicated to uh, Tagore um, and he's got his own school and Guruji goes and visits him so that's to come later so we won't uh, dwell too much on Tagore but uh, he is a very eminent figure in Indian history and Indian literature and Indian music. Mike? And he was also Bengali, right? I feel like at, at this time, there was a lot going on in Bengal, not only Yogananda, but also people like Tagore and Jagadish Chandra both. It was like a hotspot for new ideas and um, groundbreaking movements. Yeah, it's, it's actually insane to think about that. So many yeah. greats were in that same space. And um, mm -hmm. I was just speaking to my wife about this because um, we'll talk about it a bit later. But I'm reading um, the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa, and because um, mm -hmm. uh, the next chapter is about that a little bit. So I was reading, I was reading that book, and it's obviously a breathtaking piece of work. And uh, his life is uh, breathtaking equally. Um, and he was obviously around in you know 1860s and 70s, and and a very very important figure in the renaissance of, of hinduism actually in in that time but um he was there and just down the road lady mahashaya was there <laughs> and you know bit, bit further babaji was there, no doubt just wandering around and all these other saints and like tagore and master mahashaya and all these you know figures in steeped in the spiritual fabric of India, were just there. And they, they would have crossed paths and they would have um, breathed in the same air at some point and exhaled the same air. And uh, they would have walked the same bit of soil somewhere. And some fortunate soul would have been, you know, blessed enough to take the soil of that, that hallowed ground <laughs> with all those greats. Um, yeah, and that's just not even to name. That's just to name a couple that we know about, and there's countless, countless others at that time that we won't go into. But the Dagora's poem, um, the essentially has written this poem about the idealistic scientist, the ideal scientist, um, and it's a very sweet, very very sweet poem. 
Um, it's he starts by calling him O Hermit. <laughs> hermit is usually uh, reserved for someone that's uh, a spiritual recluse, um, you know, eminent. Uh, but here he's referring to him a scientist as a hermit. Mike, I think every dedicated scientist can identify with this word hermit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you need to spend a lot of time in your lab or at home to make some progress. Yeah. yeah, indeed. So he quotes um, the sa Sama, and um, he's quoting the Veda, the Sama Ved, and we're going to talk about that in the next, in, in about uh, 10 minutes or so. But here we'll just focus on the poem. So uh, essentially he's referring, he's, he's He's giving him, he's giving he's giving a, the most wonderful of shout outs by writing a poem about him. You know, it's quite a, a privilege, I would say, to have India's most eminent uh, poet write a poem about you, isn't it? Um, and it's quite fitting that those two souls were so, you know, such friendly relations, isn't it? Um, because their paths cross not only physically, but in the realms of metaphysics. Um, and one one maybe using literature and music, but the others using scientific discovery to essentially uncover the mysteries. Mike, I wonder at what stage Tagore was in his career at this point, because I the way I think you're gonna describe it, it was Tagore before receiving the the the, the Nobel Prize and after and before he was um, not didn't have a very high standing and afterwards. He suddenly was the star and also in India. So I, I wonder if this maybe was written before and then later on when he became so famous, he'd be like, oh my God, Tagore wrote a poem about me, even though it's the same person, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was then ahead of his yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> ahead of his time in his life. And, um, <laughs> it would be it would have been cool if he wrote this before a scientist became very very well known yeah, that would be mm, cool. as well. mm -hmm. a bit prophetic perhaps um i like i really like the just the the the, the rise awake in quotes it's um really really quite impactful to me um but again we'll cover the sam samavid in more detail a bit later so there's there's other elements here in this poem which we won't read verbatim but if there's any lines that 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 stick out, please do say. So there's um there's there's a concept here where he's he says pedantic wranglings profitless, which to me rings to when people philosophize over what to do, what not to do, why to do it, rather than doing it, and that's getting caught up in theory rather than actual practice, um, and essentially that is that could be a very good description for um, experimental scientists such as uh, such as um, Bose. So that's quite nice and quite a good lesson for us <laughs> to stop our rambling and do. <laughs> um, the other the other the other concept that's quite nice here is he's calling he's calling to the the scholar band that um, He's sending that Bose has been, you know, sending his uh, timeless messages to, and the scholar band in this case is obviously the worldwide group of scientists, and um, and all of them are united 
in their search for truth, um, you know, be it in whichever field of research that they're in or whatever, um, whatever country they're in, whatever their actions were, or whatever their purposes were. Like, you know, you have, the, we had the space race um, a bit later than probably when this poem was um, written, but, uh, you know, at first, the first thing they wanted to do was get a satellite to orbit, uh, you know, orbit the Earth. And as soon as Sputnik did that, you know, shudders down the American spine. But but actually, scientists around the world would have been like, oh, my God, imagine what we can do with a satellite, right? Um, regardless of, you know, it's the implications for military use, but the fact that what we can achieve and then obviously then america landed on the moon and equally there was a fear but there's equal in, in more than fear it was the the realm of possibility of of travel interstellar travel mike yeah in retrospect you would have to say that uh, having the space race as a competition is entertaining and it's easy um to digest but actually the contributions were really great on both sides you would have to say and to this day um, I, I read articles on this often because I'm just interested. And um, one planet that is really interesting is Venus because it is the same size as Earth and it has many attributes that make, make it an interesting planet. And the, during the space race, the Soviets, they landed like multiple satellites on Venus. Neither of them survived very long because the conditions are very harsh there. But most of what we know about Venus today is from those missions. So I, I, I feel like science goes like, is it a universal thing, right? It's not a Russian or American or whatever thing, right? Mm. And, and that's essentially the next line, together around thy sacrifice of fire, let them all gather. Mm. And it is a sacrifice, isn't it? It's a, you know, you might you mm. mentioned earlier it would be so it would be pretty lame being ahead of your time. You don't get any appreciation. You won't get any. <laughs> you won't get any reward. You'll have to just do it for the love of the game, knowing that um, uh, you know at some some point in the future, uh, you know that humanity is um, going to to benefit. Um, I think there's a there's a nice quote that similar to this that. Um, Spiritually, something like spirituality begins when uh, when a person plants the seed for a tree, knowing that he'll never ever enjoy the shade from which it, you know, transpires because it's for future generations. And this is essentially what uh, what all the scientists around the world are doing, aren't they? <laughs> In their fields, individual fields. So yes, so homage. Let us pay our respects <laughs> and gratitude. So. The next, the next line is about really patriotism, um, and this is now Dagor being very patriotic, and Dagor was was deeply patriotic, and that's probably one of the reasons why Guruji, one of the many reasons why Guruji included so much of his work and chapter dedicated to him, because of their shared um, patriotism. Um, but Dagor really goes to town on this. The, he's idealizing India to an infinite infinite uh, uh, level isn't he essentially saying that um you know the lofty seat and platform and teacher of all lands he calls it so this is no like uh, passing compliment this is and this is not just someone who is um who you know is respected in india dagor's poetry 
and works to this day are glorified and studied across across the world so uh, he's a very learned man and uh, for him to for him to also be this patriotic and to refer to the Indian history and the contributions that it used to make and what it is not making now or then under the British rule was must have been really painful for him and actually um, it was painful to Indians as well because um, you know the, the gap between what you can't what we can do and what we are allowed to do under you know under the British rule are two very different uh, different paradigms like he Tagore wrote a book which I read was which was called um, the, the home and the world and he, he likens um, he likens the um, a marriage to what's happening with um, with uh, with India right now so he's uh, this this there's this lady that's like in a very like repressed kind of like emotionally weird marriage and then there's and she's contemplating the idea of um you know getting away from the marriage or finding someone new and he was comparing he was using this whole book just to compare the indian mindset right now where everyone's very used to the british and even though it's got all these flaws where you know we're, we're kind of invested there and then but there's this there's this pasture that's out there that um so yeah he he does some beautiful work just as uh, shakespeare did in uh, you know weaving in um, bits of uh, sentiment chris i actually used a very similar analogy when somebody asked me about why I don't eat meat. <laughs> yeah, you know, imagine if somebody was in a bad relationship the whole time, they didn't realize it, and then <laughs> afterward they kind of wake up to it. Um, so, yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Yes, indeed. So, let's move on now to the footnote. <clears throat> and it is quite a footnote. Oh, uh, Lauren. Before we do. I'd also just love to highlight the fact that in this poem, he talks about meditation, you know, it's so integral to India. And here we have like a really um, full picture. And he, he says, um, you know, he's talking about India returning back to her natural state. And then he describes it to her trance of earnest meditation. Let her sit once more unruffled, greedless, strifeless pure and wow Hmm. really good um affirmations isn't it for us just to sit whilst we're um, to stay whilst we're meditating strifeless imagine if we really took the strifeless to to heart (laughs) Mm. and really made that word our own during the infinite patience that's required to uh, to attain uh, samadhi in meditation or even mm. out of meditation because that's unruffled. what yeah unruffled <laughs> as well yeah because mm. uh, we're beset by failures <laughs> mm. um but um yeah lauren thank you for pointing that i actually made a note on that so but i didn't say it <laughs> so well done okay. uh, there you go lauren in tune um but <clears throat> he says um to duty and devotion to her trance of earnest meditation and trance remember this is um um uh, english word but not a very good translation for the word samadhi so the letter to duty and devotion to her samadhi of earnest meditation we could we could replace that word and we would probably get a bit more 
joy from it. <laughs> um, that would probably be Sabhikalpa Samadhi as well. Maybe not Nirbhikalpa. <laughs> um, footnote. So this is now an epic footnote. Um, I'm, I'm troubled by how we should be dealing with this footnote because if, if Guruji and SRF have thought it is so important to put such emphasis on this stuff, then who are we not to uh, uh, pay respect to the, <laughs> all the stuff that's in here? So we'll go through it in some detail, but not a um, lot of detail. Uh, I've got some readings here and there that we'll go through as well. So listeners do bear with us. <laughs> so the first thing to note is that um, it's translated, the poem was translated by Mandamohan Ghosh, not the poem actually, was it a poem? Some the 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 some of it thing, the reference was was translated by um, um, uh, Manmohan Ghosh. So Manmohan Ghosh is the brother of Aurobindo. Aurobindo is this South Indian, uh, very famous uh, mystic from South India in, in Pondicherry. And he's got an ashram there, which is very lovely French French town there. They speak French. And um, he's got a, they've got, and out of that community and the, out of that ashram, they've got something called Auroville, where they're doing this uh, pure experiment of uh, communal, communal living without any currency, um, you know, in the spirit of, uh, volunteering and all that kind of stuff so it's a very uh, interesting experiment and interesting community and there's people all around the world that uh, are living in it and everyone's very uh, it's been studied in sociology around the world so that's quite interesting if people want to have a look at that but um this um this poem is as i say it's translated by Manmohan Ghosh um and it was published in uh, Tagore's uh, Santiniketan, which is the kind of society that his family established in um, in Bengal, um, and that this is probably a magazine. So this 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 section of the footnote says that the hymn called Sama is uh, Sama is one of the four Vedas. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, but um, here he goes to describe. He goes on to describe. The importance of the Vedas and uh, why you know the, the 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 origins of the words and the relation to Brahma. So you can read all of that. Um, there's also a nice chant that um, is similar to that. There's uh, that that YSS YSS chant is called Brahma Brahma Guru Jay, which is quite nice. They did that in I think last year's convocation when they do the um, kirtan from the Smriti Mandir in, in, um, mm. in India. Um, so yes, so then, then he's also saying that um, essentially the whole of the cosmos is represented in the Vedas, which is quite a, quite a uh, thing to say, but uh, it's actually verified not well is one thing for indians to say that <laughs> but then there's various historians and uh, philosophers that also say it um victor cousins is one of the historians that says it he's a, he's a famous um 
Indiologist, if that's if that's the word. Uh, but what, Mike, what does he say? Do you want to read out the bold thing? He says, when we read with attention the philosophical monuments of the Orient, above all those of India, we discover there are many a truth so profound that we are constrained to bend the knee before the philosophy of the East and to see in this cradle of the human race, the native land of the highest philosophy. So that was Victor Cousin. And then Friedrich uh, Schlegel also uh, made an observation. He said, even the loftiest philosophy of the Europeans, the idealism of reason, as set forth by the Greek philosophers, appears in comparison with the abundant life and vigor of Oriental idealism, like a feeble Promethean spark against the full flood of sunlight. So they were pretty impressed by the philosophy of the East, say the least. Indeed. Really good good uh, quotes and respect given to mm. to those Vedas. <clears throat> and it is a and he goes on to say it's an immense uh, literature and um he and another very interesting point that's next mentioned is that the the the, the texts don't ever mention or no author is ever ascribed to them um one of the common things that is said is oh vyasa who was the author of the mahabharat um he's the one who authored the vedas but actually they're referenced in the mahabharat so it's before that, so essentially what uh, the theory is that is that um, Veda Vyasa, which is what we call him Veda Vyasa, is he kind of organized the Vedas and um, not organizing them in terms of text, but actually in terms of how they should be structured in terms of our understanding, what should be recited at which point. Um, and because there was no text at the time, um, and one of the things this uh, section of the footnote says is that um, the you know paper and stone are not great in terms of uh, time and also uh, where where they're kept as we know with the Rosetta Stone <laughs> we've gone thousands of uh, miles away from where it was installed so but what does last is um, essentially mantra or the revelation by sound which is what he mentions here in the footnote and there's something called Shruti, which is directly heard. So essentially it's passed down this whole Veda, which is apparently a hundred thousand couplets uh, are passed down through chant and recitation, which is pretty amazing. And it's completely orally and it's restricted to Brahmin priests well, it was restricted to Brahmin priests to hand over. So it'd be in their, you know, generations. And that's why the Brahmins were considered high because they've got the, they're, they're the font of, uh, font of knowledge because it's in their tradition to, to learn and memorize and to pass on to their children. Um, but Chris, can you tell us how they would go about doing, memorizing a hundred thousand couplets? It's as you described in this footnote. Yes, um, the Vedas were a revelation by sound. No, no, the second bit, the second, second bit, the second part, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, Thanks. By observing the particular order, Anupurvi, in which the Vedic words occur, and with the aid of the phonological rules for combinations and sounds, Sandhi, 
and for the relations of letters, uh, relation of letters, san, sanatana. And by providing in certain mathematical ways the accuracy of the memorized texts, the Brahmins have uniquely preserved from a dim antiquity the original purity of the Vedas. Each syllable, akshara, of a Vedic word is endowed with significance and efficacy. Quite special, isn't it? So this is essentially how knowledge has been passed on untainted through the millennia in India's, India's rich history. So uh, this is absolutely fantastic, isn't it? And one thing that, um, you know, Bose did in his research um, was that he wanted to publish all the knowledge free, didn't he? He didn't want to put any patents in place. And he had this grandiose theory um, on the economics of knowledge and sharing of knowledge. And similarly, the Vedas, <laughs> no one, no one person owned them. You know, the author didn't think to write his name down, right? And so the knowledge was freely distributed amongst the whole of the masses in India through qualified uh, priests, essentially, such as Brahmins. So very interesting parallel there. And this is why um, Rabindranath Tagore, no doubt, would have had held both in such high esteem because this is the culture from which he knows a lot about as a you know literature enthusiast um, and you know one of the renowned poets of, of our time. Um, and that time, and and he obviously appreciated what Bose was doing and how he was doing it and the impact he was going to have on future generations, which is which is true. So we we said that um, actually before this um, call, Lauren and I were discussing how to pronounce various of the words that we're gonna we're gonna read out in a second, and. Um, uh, I, was, I was describing the intricacies of uh, various parts of the um, pronunciations, and uh, they're very subtle, right, Lauren? Um, mm. But if if you didn't have it precise, and here, you know, Chris, what Chris read out just speaks to the preciseness of um, how it's conveyed, how each word, akshara or letter, is is conveyed, then through time you'd get variations, and then it would get tainted. But because it's mathematically each sound consonant vowel is mathematical both in terms of where it comes from the mouth to the way it's said to you know the, the breath it's all linked um so then it can't uh, ever ever um degenerate um which is the beauty of sanskrit and why so many people are in love with the ancient language so in india we've obviously got tens of different languages, if not hundreds <laughs> of variations, um, um, a lot of which are from Sanskrit. But uh, so Sanskrit itself is is there as the common thread that weaves all of them uh, through scripture. So no one speaks the Sanskrit, as we mentioned previously, but everyone, a lot of people know it through because of the scripture um, and the famous poems and the epics that are in Sanskrit. But the languages are all allowed to evolve as they do in all the other uh, parts of the world. So that's the difference between that, the two uh, ways of uh, doing it. 
uh, so it's an interesting parallel actually because like um is it king james um when he ordered the english translation of the bible um and that became obviously one of the most important uh, things for christianity really wasn't it um to, to have that english translation um but it, so many people debate now the, the words and now that we've got so many different uh bibles and so many different interpretations and the languages are very very mixed up um, and we had professor clooney in from harvard university who essentially was saying a similar thing our you know from ancient aramaic to present day english to old english back then um it's all very very muddled and um, hence we can have so many different interpretations of seemingly the same <laughs> same verse um but yes yeah, so let's talk a little bit now about the vedas now i've taken some things out of god talks with arjuna which are of specific interest to us so um lauren can you start us off about the vedas There's some yes comment, comments yeah i would love to and this is from uh chapter two of the four Vedas, the Rig Veda is the oldest or original text. Its philosophy and prescriptions show an evolution from worship of the forces of nature to the recognition of one supreme spirit, Brahman, and correspondingly, evolution from dependence on the favours of the gods to self-mastery. The Yajur Veda and Samaveda are considered generally to be derived from the Rig Veda. The Azure is a special arrangement of rituals, a handbook for priests who conduct the ceremonial rites. The Samaveda contains selected chants and defines their proper melodic intonation as applicable to the Vedic rituals. Yeah, so Yajur Veda, essentially, you may have heard of the word Tantra, and uh, a lot of Tantra then would derive from this book mm -hmm. um, but before you go on on a, a mad quest to, to learn about tantra and all these other vedas please do listen to uh, the rest of what uh, the quotes here from from what guruji writes there's a word of warning essentially go on chris mm -hmm. the atharva veda is of later origin and is primarily incantations incantations sorry and magical formulas designed to appease negative forces and gain mundane favours. Among its practical prescriptions are those that have been called the beginning of Indian medis uh, medicinal? Medical. Uh, medical. Oh my gosh, sorry. Slow <laughs> medical science. Sages who are able with uh, divine intuition to read not the surface meanings but the true essence of Vedic thought. Declare these scriptures a timeless source of knowledge, touching on all secular as well as religious arts and sciences. So it sounds very um, pagan-like, doesn't it? Um, mm -hmm. But um, there's some depth to it. Mike, if you'd like to carry on and elaborate on the depth. The renowned Shankaracharya of Puri, His Holiness, Jagat Guru Swami, Sri Bharati Krishna Tirtha found in 16 slokas of the Atharva Veda, the Janita Sutras, 
the Ganita Sutras, which have been dismissed by many Western scholars as unintelligible. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> Unique formulas applicable to mathematics in all its branches, from simple arithmetic to calculus and physics and all forms of applied mathematics. See Vedic mathematics written by Motilal Varnarsidas. Varnarsi, 1965. In 1958, the head of the Govardhan Math in Kuri and the direct spiritual successor of the 8th century Adi Shankara toured the United States under the auspices of SRF. During his three-month tour, he spoke on Vedic metaphysics and mathematics in major universities across the country. It was a historic event the first time any, any Shankaracharya had traveled to the West. Wow. Indeed. So there's a lot of, the, if, you, if you interpret it, interpret it, a lot of it in the literal senses, you could uh, get lost and as the Western scholars, some Western scholars call it unintelligible nonsense. You could, you could, you could uh, deduce that, but then you would, if you did that, you wouldn't come from the tradition and the history of knowing what its purpose is. And for example, all the mathematical deductions that were just Mike just read out there, um, you you may not even be able to appreciate um, because you had that initial. Uh, you know, reservation <laughs> because it's so different to how uh, you know a, a um, Western scripture or Christian biblical scripture is. Um, yeah, Mike. Is it possible that those Western scho Western scholars who said this was nonsense didn't have the level of mathematics or physics mm. themselves to understand what was actually being said in those, or mm. maybe they weren't expecting this high amount of knowledge condensed in a small yep. text. And also because of the various incantations and uh, fire ceremonies, it does all seem very, you know, witchcrafty and pagany and uh, very old, you know, in terms of its, um, its uh, antiquity. And it's old in terms of, it doesn't feel like a modern way to do stuff, but uh, there is obviously a lot of metaphysics there that, um, uh, a scholar, a simple scholar, wouldn't appreciate, certainly not one from the West who's not from the Eastern tradition. So that is what you deduce naturally if you were of Western, uh, um, you know, history or born in the West. Um, the the, um, the the Gospel of Ram Krishna Paramhansa also talks about um, this in in the book um, Master Mahashaya, and um, also talks about this essentially that. Um, that all these, um, you know, all these, uh, all these rituals and these fire rites—they've got an ancient, um, you know, they've got a very deep and profound purpose that isn't isn't essentially obvious just by looking at it. But the impact can be seen on, you know, the subtle, subtle levels. But um, we can we can get lost in um, all of that, <laughs> and that there's obviously a very big risk that we we do do that but the the bug if, if we go down that line but the Bhagavad Gita is um is they, they call it and Guruji calls it the the essence of the four Vedas because um it has it it has virtually everything it has the philosophy 
it's if you look it's actually got some rituals in there and you know he calls it the guruji calls the the rising kundalini force as you know the kriya as a real you know fire ceremony and so he's literally in in god talks with arjuna he's taking he's taking various elements of the vedas and then bringing it out in in a way that we can appreciate and even though it's you know 2000 pages long and that in itself is a study it's obviously much easier to study the bhagavad gita than it would be to go to the vedas um, so lauren can you read out uh, what guruji says about that because the gita as we said there's four vedas there's 108 upanishads and there's six other systems of hindu philosophies but Guruji here tells us what their significance is to, for us in, in God Talks with Arjuna, again in the same chapter and verse. Lauren, can you read that out? A scripture is meant primarily for the liberation of the soul from the bondage of rebirth and secondarily for teaching the art of success in material life. Certain classes of people blindly worship the Vedas and consider all of their injunctions to be observed literally as divine prescriptions essential to liberation. The authors of these ancient treaties, treatises were wise enough to stimulate interest in the scriptures by showing the general populace ways of material success and then to try to lead them on to follow these self-disciplinary rules that end in spiritual liberation. So, different horses with different courses and around about... Uh way to essentially attain the same goal of self-mastery and and self-realization <laughs> so unless so the word of warning here is unless you're an academic and you have scholarly inclinations about the history of you know literature and uh, scripture then i guruji is essentially telling us not to go down this rabbit hole <laughs> of going down and studying all these ancient scriptures and books um because he's given he's he's made it so easy for us and even the easy path is not easy path because god talks about Arjuna is you know 2000 pages and the lessons are that long and um the second coming of christ is is that long so we've got enough work even with the condensed um essence that what guruji has given us we've got enough work but this is essentially where all of that essence is derived from and uh, it, Guruji wouldn't be Guruji if he didn't tell us where it all comes from. Right. And it's not just the, the reading, is it? It's then applying the reading to one's own realisation. So you can, you know, if reading it is and understanding it in, in the brain, that's one thing, but then actually realising it, it's a whole other, isn't it? So, And that's the goal, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Being a scholar is not the goal. No. <laughs> mm. as, as interesting as it is sometimes to be scholar, scholarly. And, and good for your ego. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Being called a professor and what have you. You're going to not say, or somewhere, somewhere in SRF, not say it's one of the more challenging, you know, pursuits to be able to keep the ego uh you know on, on track not get too carried away um in paths of yoga at least you know when, when you go down the scientific path can, mm -hmm. can yeah 
consumer mind. Because you go like, I'm, I'm so intelligent, and yet I have to stay humble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thus ends chapter eight. So my reflections on this chapter is that there was much more philosophy than I thought there would be. <laughs> I thought it was um, quite heavily into the science, which obviously there is a lot of, but interwoven in virtually every other paragraph is this deep, profound philosophy about the intrinsic um, you know, nature of life and the creator's hand in everything. Um, and also the, uh, you know, the altruistic um, elements of economics or the way to approach um, knowledge and the dissemination of knowledge and the importance of that um, is something that was a really nice to reflect on during this this little you know five weeks that we've spent on it um, because you know we're really talking about the ideal approach aren't we to education and your career and work ethic and the the perils of commercialization mike sorry chris yeah it's it, it is an interesting one isn't it i agree with you frank there's so much more philosophy in it and um i'm trying to cast my mind back to when i first read the book i remember actually you know this chapter i remember where i was when i was reading through it i remember just thinking to myself like wow you know i Growing up in the West, I never really had any appreciation for India's contribution in scientific pursuit. And just going through it now, it just unravels that or it compounds that, you know, understanding that realization of, you know, the depths of of um, of uh, contribution that India has had. So um, when I think maybe why Yogadanda included this information for us to digest in, in the autobiography of a yogi of all things, you know, we've talked about it before where it's kind of not really necessarily about him, is it? You know, it's an autobiography of other yogis and, you know, of, of other pe peoples almost mm. uh, than, than necessarily just about, about Yogananda. So it's just, a, it's a really compounds the truth that Yogananda, you know, feels so passionately and has so much love for the peoples of, of India, the history, you know, the contributions that India's had. And it probably is reaching out to the audience, isn't it? very gently to kind of guide us, guide our attention over to where, you know, it helps build the bridge between the East and the West. And that's really what he was trying to do. So, so often was build the appreciation of what each side can bring in. And, and this just says, okay, look, you know, what you guys can do, we can do and maybe, maybe even better at times, <laughs> you know, you know, we, we, we actually have a lot in common. So, so it's just built, built that appreciation for me. I'm um, going over this with a fine tooth comb. Mm. Indeed. The um the other thing the other big element of this was the um the in the weaving in of the India's the ancient India's great contribution to modern day, you know, civilization. Um, be they the ancient universities of Nalanda and Taxila University that, that is mentioned in this chapter to the modern modern day scientists and but but also the, the scriptural references um of the of the vedas and and their scientific approach in terms of knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge in in those universities that we that we mentioned before which is pretty cool um the um the other thing was um that uh, it was when when the british um came they kind of 
with their you know with their economic and military might they suppressed um suppressed that side of, of like the appreciation of indian history amongst the indians because like as as a um as a dominated nation of peoples you and if your ruler is saying look the reason you're so backwards and the country's so poor is because you know all these ritualistic things that you're doing all your scriptures are all you know not great but we've got jesus christ and we've got the bible and this is look at look at what we can achieve but um this is this is this is really the importance of um the this is why i think the importance why so much patriotism is in these interwoven into these um chapters and sections because the the mentality and the culture in india the morale must have been so low <laughs> after you know 100 uh, 150 years of uh, foreign foreign rule um, and it wasn't a ideal rule it wasn't it wasn't an altruistic ruler was it? it was essentially a ruler that was interested in the empire and taking taking wealth and making the the British Isles as strong as possible um, at, the, at the cost of the, um, of the other countries <laughs> that it was ruling over, but we won't get into that. <laughs> so, but it was a quite um, quite tough to study this one. Um, I'm sure all of you who prepared for these episodes will attest to that. But um, I think only when you study it in depth that we have you come you can draw out all these beautiful um, arcs that we have from there. So I'm glad we did it, Mike. I feel that when I read this chapter before I glossed over a lot, over a lot of things that I found too, too challenging to think about it at the time. Um, and um, that's why I'm actually really thankful we did this deep dive and we actually uh, went through every single piece of footnotes in the chapter. Because it is very scientific, and you you have to do some research to put some things into context. But it's actually the message of this chapter is great, so I'm I'm glad to have this, had this experience. Thank you, Mike. Um, so looking ahead, so chapter nine, um, I'm gonna uh, Lauren, if you don't mind, I'll start, um, and then you Ooh. can perhaps. Uh, summarize what we've got to look forward to so firstly i'd say from here on in it gets extremely serious <laughs> so master Mahasha, which lauren is going to talk a little bit about um is um obviously quite an exalted disciple of ramakrishna paramahansa but um the guruji's experiences with him are quite profound so i think this next this next chapter and then the following chapter is I meet my master Sri Yukteswar and obviously it doesn't doesn't get much more serious than that chapter so uh, we're gonna have to really uh, stay focused to do these coming chapters uh, quite good justice because like I tr we tried to split up this next chapter and we could get no less than seven parts <laughs> so it's gonna next chapter is gonna be pretty immense um but uh one thing that you should do is that um master mahashaya wrote a book for his for his guru and it's a very famous book called uh, the gospel of ram krishna paramahansa and um he's you know he's um it's the reason it's famous because master mahashaya was essentially 
he was with him for a large part of his life and he he kind of kept a diary and this book is the diary of um of that um so it's quite nice and from my perspective there's a, a lot of devotion in the next chapter and a lot of uh, elements of uh, career practice and uh, how um how we should apply it as well so it's it's a perfect next chapter i think or a perfect first of the very deep chapters to go into but lauren perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the next or the start of the next chapter oh i mean you've done it justice <laughs> we could have left it there <laughs> um what i would say is that even though it's serious and deep it for me it doesn't feel heavy so um, i hope our listeners are not put off by by you know our seven part chapter for chapter nine because i don't think it will be heavy um but yes we start chapter nine with him meeting master mahashai not to be confused with lahiri mahashai <laughs> i i feel like we've all had a moment of confusion and thinking so um yeah we have that to look forward to i don't really want to say too much because more will be revealed as we journey through together and i think the joy is in the journey right so um yeah, we can certainly look forward to his first meeting with this great master and what ensues purely from being in his presence and hearing what he has to say. Very, so, very yes. well said. Very well said, Lauren. Um, and also not to be confused with another modern day saint who is named Sri M, who's very popular in India. Um, and Sri M is a disciple of Mahavtar Babaji and he's got a famous book, uh, Apprentice to a Himalayan Master, um, which, which I'm reading. But again, not to be, in, not to be confused by that Sri M <laughs> as a different M, even though Master Mahashai refers to himself as just M because uh, he doesn't want to put too much emphasis on himself. Um, so that's quite nice. So we look forward to that. But I've, I found a very, very nice parallel for us to end on. So as I mentioned, um, uh, Master Mahashaya has got this book called uh, uh, The Gospel of Ramakrishna Paramahansa, who is his guru, and who has actually a lot of, um, I would say, influence on, uh, on Guruji and Sri Yukteswar and Hinduism in general, actually, in it right now from from the time where it was back when when the British were kind of suppressing it. Um, so there's a book that that book is freely available. I'll put a link to it, but it's exception. It is exceptional. It's, it's essentially a a diary, as I say, just very intimate conversations. And he was with with uh, Master Mahashaya was with um, Ramakrishna Paramahansa on a daily basis. So he would just note everything. And that is a very, very rare um, thing to have, especially of, of, of from uh, um, esteem, esteemed souls such as Ramakrishna Paramahansa. So uh, I'll put a link on that and perhaps uh, you can uh, read that. You can get more inside the mind of uh, Master Mahashai because he also has conversations with him. So there's a lot, uh, but uh, there's a very beautiful section in it, which I've just found, which is very relevant for this chapter that we've just read. And this, this is linked to everything being alive. Uh, we mentioned Chris and Mike that, that, you know, it's insane to think that tin, you know, inorganic matter such as tin would have feelings or be alive. But here is a section from the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa that uh, 
that sings to that tune and we'll end it there on that. So Jago everyone, thank you, Chris. And if you can read that and we'll we'll end it there. And we'll we're ending it with Chris reading this because he likes this subject matter a lot. <laughs> I've not sure read this before, so I don't I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. <laughs> <laughs> Sri Ramakrishna one day fed a cat with the food that was to be offered to Kali. This was too much for the manager of the temple garden, who considered himself responsible for the proper conduct of the worship. He reported Sri Ramakrishna's insane behavior to Mathur Babu. Sri Ramakrishna has described the incident. The Divine Mother revealed to me in the Kali temple that, I, that it was she who had become everything. She showed me that everything was full, was full of consciousness. The image was consciousness. The altar was consciousness. The water vessels were consciousness. The door sill was consciousness. The marble floor was, was consciousness. All was consciousness. I found everything inside the room soaked as it were in bliss. The bliss of God. I saw a wicked man in front of the Kali temple, but in him I also saw the power of the Divine Mother vibrating. That was why I fed the cat with the food that was to be offered to the Divine Mother. I clearly perceived that all this was the Divine Mother, even the cat. <laughs>